Before we begin, I wanted to give listeners a warning. My wife says that this episode is especially nerdy and might not be for the casual sports fan. Listener discretion is advised. There's always a game won in the World Series. Someone needs to win four games. And sometimes, when we're really lucky, we get a game seven. That's the beginning, the middle, and end. And when we do get that full seven-game series, we get to immerse ourselves in one of the most exciting experiences sports can offer. When a World Series goes seven games, It means that both teams necessarily must have won three games apiece. And it also means that one team, whose back was against the wall facing sudden death in the preceding game six, has to defy all odds and win an elimination game to get there. A seven-game set doesn't just allow that kind of drama. It demands it. It means that the series takes on a story-like quality to it. There is an exposition. There is a twist, there is mystery, there is suspension, there is a climax, and ultimately, there is a resolution. For while there is intrigue heading into the final game, there is never uncertainty exiting it. There's always one champion, and there's always one runner-up. One, four, seven. Game one is always played at the team with home field advantages stadium. Game four is always played at the team without that advantage's stadium. And game seven is always played where the series started. Unlike hockey and basketball, which have two games at home, two games on the road, one game back at home, then another game on the road, followed by the final game at home again, baseball has an elegant 2-3-2 format, almost like a palindrome. And home field advantage has been determined by a number of different criteria throughout baseball history. For the first part of the 20th century, home field simply alternated between the leagues. For almost a decade and a half, it was determined by which league's team won that year's All-Star game, perhaps never proving as consequential as it did in 2011, when the Cardinals enjoyed the privilege of hosting Game 7, despite its status as a wildcard team, where it beat the arguably better and more successful Rangers at home. And now, home field just goes to the team with the better regular season record. Decades upon decades ago, when teams were geographically clustered and TV revenues were less influential in baseball scheduling, a seven-game set was usually played in seven straight days without any rest days. When the Brooklyn Dodgers or the New York Giants played the New York Yankees in the World Series, no rest was needed for travel. The teams could simply take a subway to move from their home stadium to the road venue. Today, however, a seven-game World Series virtually always features two rest days due to travel and other revenue concerns, meaning that every series bakes in an off day between the changing of the scenery. Under this modern configuration of the World Series, there are two off days, one after Game 2 and another after Game 5. So the typical seven-game World Series lasts nine days. That means that Game 4 is typically played on the fifth day of the series, and Game 7 is played on the ninth. 
virtually every seven game set since the 1960s has followed this roadmap with the two World Series as we're going to be talking about today serving as the most notable exceptions. But framing it like that makes it sound like a seven-game set is something routine or ordinary. To the contrary, to even get to a game seven, so many different things need to align. Because of the difficulty for a series to be stacked up so evenly, or for the games to swing wildly enough to provide that seventh game, it is somewhat of a mythical creature. Only 40 in the 115 World Series in baseball history have reached a Game 7, including one eight-game series in 1912. That means that almost two-thirds of baseball World Series don't actually feature the drama of a decisive Game 7. And if teams get to that magical seventh game, it's usually close. Of the 40 winner-take-all World Series contests in baseball history, 15 have been decided by a single run and 22 have been decided by two runs or fewer. Each of the last 11 Game 7s, going back to the Mets' 1986 win over the Red Sox, have been decided by four runs or fewer, and five of those last 11 have been decided by one run. Curiously, it is road teams, not home teams, with a slightly better winning percentage during Game 7s, with road teams winning 21 of the 40 and home teams winning the other 19. One thing that makes a World Series so different from a championship series in other sports is the pivotal, if not near dispositive, role that a starting pitcher plays in each individual game. While the starting lineups in basketball and hockey, for example, are tweaked from time to time, fundamentally, the core of a team does not change between games. A peripheral player might change here or there, or a rotation might be altered, but if a hockey or basketball championship series goes seven games, you're probably seeing that team's Gretzky or Jordan all seven nights. But baseball just doesn't work that way. Because pitchers need rest, if a World Series goes seven, there's just no way you'll see a Kershaw, Bumgarner, or Kluber in every game, with the odds instead favoring seeing them twice, and maybe if the team is lucky, three times. In that respect, the seven-game World Series is far different than any other championship series in professional sports, because the most important player on the field changes every single game. In basketball and hockey, there, of course, are differences between games at home and on the road, but strategic advantages don't really change significantly between games one and two. But in baseball, because your ace pitches game one and your number two pitches the next night, there's a dramatic change in the complexion of the series between each and every single game. A World Series, therefore, has a specific cadence, a rhythm, an ebb and a flow that follows the quality of each team's starting pitchers night to night. And that's one of the best things about a World Series, particularly one that ends up going seven. Every matchup is different and every matchup affects the next one. And of course, you can never predict that you're going to go seven games, but you have to plan as if you are. So there are certain matchups that favor you more than your adversary, certain pitchers who pitch better at home than on the road, and sometimes you have more of a top-heavy rotation, making you think, hey, maybe we can win game one, but we're probably not winning again until game four. Some would argue that there's more strategy about those matchups in between games than in any other sport, and that strategy varies team to team and matchup to matchup. But one virtually universal principle is the following. Get your best pitcher on the mound as early and as often as possible. 
And if you're lucky, maybe, just maybe, you can get your ace on the mound in games one, four, and seven. Of course, sometimes timing makes that more or less possible. In 1981, for example, the National League Championship Series went five games, which was then the max. And the Dodgers needed Fernando Valenzuela in the decisive Game 5 of that series, so the team couldn't pitch their ace until Game 3 of the World Series. While the Dodgers lost game, Games 1 and 2 of the World Series, Valenzuela pitched and won Game 3, and the Dodgers won the next four in a row, winning the series. So while timing can impact when a team puts its best starting pitcher on the mound, teams do everything they can to set things up so that they can feature their ace or aces as much as possible. For example, teams frequently shorten typical rotations and rest cycles so that they can get their best starting pitcher to pitch as many times as possible in a series. Instead of having a five-man rotation with each starting pitcher pitching on four days rest, most teams in the World Series go down to four-man rotations, with most of their pitchers going on three days rest instead. The math reveals the objective. If a rotation is shortened and a series goes seven, the window opens for the number one pitcher to start three games, usually games one, four, and seven. In fact, in the 40 World Series championships that have gone seven games, there have been 25 times in which one or more pitchers rested less and were used in shorter rotations so that they were able to start three separate games in the series. In total, 44 different pitchers in World Series history have started three different games in a seven-game set, usually games one, four, and seven. But there is, of course, a cost with pitching on shortened rest. Pitchers tend to be less effective. Of the 44 pitchers who have started three games in a single World Series, only five of them have won all three starts. Babe Adams in 1909, Smokey Joe Wood in 1912, Lou Burdett in 1957, Bob Gibson in 1967, and Mickey Lolich in 1968. Of course, eight other pitchers have won three games in a single World Series, but not exclusively as starters. Randy Johnson, as an example, is a curious statistical hybrid. Johnson won both of his starts in the 2001 World Series and then won Game 7, but in relief. Madison Bumgarner almost won three games in the 2014 World Series in similar fashion, but scorers ended up classifying his heroic Game 7 relief performance as a save rather than a win. But the other 39 starting pitchers who started three games in a seven-game World Series took either a loss or a no decision, and in some cases more. And while Justin Verlander is 0-6 in his World Series career, he's not one of them, as he's never started three games in a single series. As a general matter, the three-start World Series pitcher is becoming less and less common. It has only happened two times in the past decade, with Corey Kluber and Chris Carpenter doing it in 2016 and 2011, respectively. It only happened one time the decade before, with Kurt Schilling doing it during the 2001 World Series. And in the 1990s, it also only happened once, with Jack Morris doing it in 1991. Some of that is because it is just harder to pitch on shorter rest these days. But part of it is also because to get to the World Series, you generally need a solid number two and number three pitcher. 
Part of it also may be due to the emergence of the super teams with stacked rotations that we're seeing more and more of in today's game. And part of it is due to the rarity of just getting to a Game 7 in the first place, as just over one-third get there at all. In today's episode of Cancelled, I'm going to talk about two seven-game sets and how critical of a role the timing of certain cancelled games in those series is played in setting the pitching matchups in those series, and arguably how those cancelled games significantly tilted the outcomes of those series. Specifically, I'm going to talk about one series where despite the manager's best effort at getting his best pitcher to start games 1, 4, and 7, a cancelled game only allowed him to start games 1 and 5. And then I'm going to talk about a separate series, where a handful of cancelled games allowed one manager to start his best pitcher, and arguably the best World Series pitcher of all time, in games 1, 4, and 6, and then his second best pitcher, one of the top pitchers in the league that season, in games 2, 5, and 7. But first, I wanted to repeat my plea for more feedback from you, the listener. I see the numbers, but I'm still not sure who you, the listener, is. So please email me, text me, call me, tweet at me, whatever, so I can hear how you're enjoying the podcast. And certainly give the podcast five stars in the iTunes store if you're bored. For those of you who are joining the podcast late, a refresher on the concept. When the quarantine first started, I found it hard to watch what ESPN and Comcast were flooding the airwaves with, basically classic games. I found them foreign and unrelatable, especially seeing the stands filled with people, a sight that we just don't see in this day and age. So I decided to focus a podcast on something that was more relatable, games that have been canceled in history. And in the process, I focused on trying to tease out some meaning from those games to see if there is anything substantive or meaningful or relatable to what we're living through today. But now, as we're starting to see professional sports leagues prepare to put in place some version of their former selves, and in short order, I'm just not sure how many more of these episodes I'm going to be able to make. And since one of the themes of today's episode is that it is rare when you see or witness the very last of something that you know it is indeed the last of its kind, I do want to thank some of my most loyal listeners who have humored me during this quarantine by listening to these podcasts and sending me nice notes of feedback. I'm talking about you, Paul Davis, Andy Stewart, Devin Chang, Jason Minsky, Lee Gersten, Kelly King, Emily Reitmeyer, Vineet Shahani, and of course my brothers, Brett, Corey, and Kevin, my mom and dad, and of course my wife, Courtney. Thank you for making me feel like I'm not just yelling into an empty cave. Today's episode of Cancelled focuses on the 1962 and the 1979 World Series championships, two series separated by nearly two decades, but connected by their opposite placements on a temporal spectrum. Specifically, because of certain cancelled games, the 1979 World Series was the shortest seven-game series in modern history, while the 1962 World Series was the longest. While both championships had a game one, four, and seven, both were impacted and in very different ways by weather delays. 
in the first series we're going to talk about, the 1979 series between the Orioles and Pirates. The weather delay, which just so happened to be the first time a World Series was delayed due to snow, caused baseball to cancel Game 1 of the series. As a result, Major League Baseball simply pushed the first two games up in the series and eliminated the first scheduled off day in the series in the process. The eventual seven-game set, which as we discussed earlier ordinarily would be played in nine days, now only had one off day. The full seven-game set, therefore, was played in just eight days. But because that off day was lost, the Orioles' best pitcher, who just happened to be the best pitcher in baseball that season, was effectively taken out of the running for making three starts in the series. The Orioles, the eventual losers of the seventh game in the series, weren't able to trot out the best pitcher in the series to start that decisive game seven because the math just wouldn't add up. The canceled games in the second series we're going to talk about from 17 years earlier had just the opposite effect. The rain came in the middle of the series, effectively tacking on four extra days of rest and allowing the New York Yankees to put their two best pitchers out three different times. In other words, while the weather delay in 1979 prevented both teams from having any of their pitchers start three games, the 1962 rain delays actually allowed the New York Yankees to start their two best pitchers in six of the seven games. And while the two World Series championships are also at opposite ends of a different spectrum, as the 1979 World Series represents the last of seven World Series played in Pittsburgh, while the 1962 World Series represents the first of five World Series played in San Francisco, both, nevertheless, represent very different but related things to what we're living through today. The 1979 World Series pitted the Baltimore Orioles, one of the best teams of the American League during the 1970s, against the Pittsburgh Pirates, one of the best teams in the National League during the 1970s. While it is hard to call any team other than the A's or Reds one of the best of the 1970s, the Bucks and O's truly were the class of their leagues. Baltimore finished first or second in every season during that decade except two, and Pittsburgh finished first or second every season during that decade except one. Indeed, the 1979 World Series was actually a rematch of the 1971 World Series, which the Pirates also won in seven, and which also featured the first night game in World Series history. In 1979, both teams finished with the best records in their respective leagues, with the Orioles having the best record in baseball and the Pirates having the second best. While the Orioles' grip on first place that season was never really in doubt, the Pirates started slow and didn't climb back into contention until well into the 1979 season. The teams were markedly different from the 1971 counterparts of themselves. The heart and soul of the Orioles remained pitching. Despite injuries to two-time Cy Young Award winner Jim Palmer, the Orioles' rotation was one of the very best in baseball, with Mike Flanagan leading the pitching corps and winning the Cy Young Award in the process, finishing with a 23-9 record and a 3.08 ERA in 16 complete games. The Cy Young Award voting wasn't even close. Flanagan finished with 97% of the first place votes. The Pirates, on the other hand, were not a team built around pitching. Sure, they had a staff that could get the job done, but their success was attributable to a high-energy and high-flying offense led by Pirates' favorite, Willie Stargell, nicknamed Pops. 
Stargell had labored long and hard throughout the decade, trying to restore a sense of enjoyment and pride that had been missing in the Pittsburgh Pirates clubhouse since the tragic death of Roberto Clemente in 1972. Stargell, the jovial first baseman, team captain, and team cheerleader, had built a close relationship with his teammates, and the new Pirates' philosophy was noticeably different both on and off the field. But the Pirates did start that season slow and couldn't seem to develop a rhythm. But sometime in June of that season, Pops put in place two campaigns to turn the team's season around. First, he implemented a so-called Gold Star program, borrowed from college football, where he awarded players a prestigious gold star on their hats after a particularly good outing or play. At the time, the Pirates wore Cuban-style caps with gold bands around them, and the players vied against each other on the field and at the plate to see who could fill up more rows faster. It was a simple, almost childlike incentive, but it seemed to work as the Pirates roared back into contention. Second, he helped declare the team's motto and fight song, picking the popular disco hit, We Are Family, as the team's anthem that summer. Family fever swept the city. The phrase, the family, was stenciled on the dugout roof and on signs and on t-shirts everywhere throughout Pittsburgh. The tune was played mercilessly over the stadium PA system, and when the Pirates ultimately clenched the pennant, the players' wives exuberantly danced atop the dugout as the team blared its anthem. Stargell earned his own stars as the 38-year-old veteran slugged 32 home runs for the family and almost single-handedly swept the Cincinnati Reds in the National League Championship Series by hitting a .455 average, two home runs, and six runs batted in. The Orioles, on the other hand, cruised comfortably through an American League Championship Series against the California Angels, winning the series three games to one. And so... The 1979 World Series featured a rematch of the 71 Fall Classic, with Pittsburgh and Baltimore again facing off for baseball's most prestigious title. The 1979 World Series was scheduled to open in Baltimore on Tuesday, October 9th. As had become customary, the series had a 2-3-2 configuration, with the first two games scheduled to be played at the Orioles Stadium, the next three in Pittsburgh, and the final two back in Baltimore, with two rest days built in for travel. But on the morning of Game 1, Baltimore saw something Major League Baseball had not yet seen in World Series history. Snow. By game time, a combination of rain, sleet, and snow rendered Game 1 unplayable. Accordingly, the weather forced postponement of the first game for the first time in the then 76-year history of the World Series. The postponement was only the 26th in World Series history, 25 of which were due to rain, and one, in 1903, was due to cold weather. Because of that delay, games 1 and 2 were bumped forward, but not the schedule for games 3 and 7. Thus, if this series were to go the distance, it would be the fastest modern seven-game World Series ever. But it was the lost day of rest that may have had the most consequential effect of the delay. According to the New York Times, the cancellation will have at least two effects on series plans. It eliminates the first off day. The second game will now be played at 8.30 p.m. Thursday, and it forces Oriole manager Earl Weaver to abandon his plan to use Cy Young Award winner Mike Flanagan again in the fourth game on Saturday. 
Instead, according to the New York Times the following day, Dennis Martinez will start that game in Pittsburgh after Jim Palmer pitches the second and Scott McGregor the third for the Orioles. Weaver had hoped that his two left-handers, Flanagan and McGregor, could pitch five of the seven games if seven are necessary, but now they will only be able to work four. The lost off day, however, opened a window for the Orioles' fourth starter, Dennis Martinez. That makes me feel good, he said after hearing that he would start the fourth game. I wanted to pitch in the series. I'm ready, and I want to help the team. I was feeling bad when Weaver told me yesterday he was going with a three-man rotation. I know he wanted to go with the lefties, and I agree, I agree with it, but I still really felt bad. And just like that, the weather stole the best pitcher in the series, Mike Flanagan's ability to pitch in games one, four, and seven. Game one was rescheduled to be played the very next day, on Wednesday, October 10th, and that morning there still were two inches of snow on the ground. By the time first pitch came around, there still were light snowflakes falling throughout Baltimore. The game conditions were sloppy, but Mike Flanagan, the undisputed best pitcher in the series, was sharp and helped steer the Orioles to a victory in game one of the series. But the weather delay stole Flanagan's day off and left him out of rhythm. Most importantly, it meant that the best pitcher in baseball that season could not pitch Game 4 unless he did so on two days rest, something virtually unheard of. The soonest Flanagan could realistically pitch again was Game 5, which he ultimately did. In Game 2, the very next day, the Pirates eked out a 3-2 victory, evening up the series at a game apiece. But the Orioles retook command when they went on the road to Pittsburgh, winning Games 3 and 4 decisively, and taking a three-games-to-one lead in the series in the process. With Flanagan set to pitch in Game 5 on three days rest, the Orioles looked like they were finally in the driver's seat. But while Flanagan did his part, the Pirates, with their backs against the wall, flipped the script by opening the floodgates against Baltimore's bullpen and grabbing a 7-to-1 victory. And the family wasn't done yet. In Game 6, the Pirates, with their backs against the wall again, shut out the Orioles, winning 4-0 and forcing the magical and mythical Game 7 in the process. But because of the weather delay, the best pitcher in the series was sidelined for that game. While Orioles manager Earl Weaver had originally tried to set his rotation so that Flanagan would be on the mound should the series go 7, the rotation was knocked out of sync, so Flanagan wasn't available to start that night. Regardless, both teams' starters were nevertheless effective, but Willie Stargell, Pops, was a one-man wrecking crew going four for five with a go-ahead two-run homer in the top of the sixth. The We Are a Family Pirates stopped the Orioles' magic for the second time in the decade in a decisive Game 7 of the World Series. Incidentally, Flanagan did come in in the ninth inning, this time pitching on two days' rest, but he couldn't record a single out. Fans can only speculate how the series might have played out if Flanagan had been able to pitch in games 1, 4, and 7 as initially planned. Had that rain, sleet, and snow delay come just one day later, the Orioles would have undoubtedly been able to throw Flanagan in that pivotal and decisive game 7. And had that weather delay delayed game 3 in that series rather than game 1, the Orioles might have been able to pitch Flanagan three times and two-time Cy Young Award winner Jim Palmer three times as well. But as Ray Bradbury once wrote, time is so strange, and life is twice as strange. The cogs miss, the wheels turn, and lives interlace too early or too often. 
The rain delay landed where it landed, and the series finished where it finished. And the Pirates, not the Orioles, were once again World Series champions. When I think back on that last World Series of the 1970s, I can't help but wonder if we will ever see another Orioles-Pirates World Series in our lifetimes. For as dominant as the Pirates and Orioles were during the 1970s, both starting and finishing the decade in the World Series playing one another, it seems that the smart money is that we won't be seeing a rematch anytime soon. The organizations, after all, have fallen off dramatically from their superior play in the 1970s, now having two of the four longest current World Series droughts in baseball, with the Pirates having not appeared since that 79 series and the Orioles not appearing since 1983. In some ways, the end of that 1970s decade that featured the O's and Bucks in the final World Series represented the beginning of the end of an era in baseball. The good old days during which small market teams were competing on the same playing field as big budget and large market teams. Just a few years before that 1979 World Series, a ruling by arbitrator Peter Seitz on December 23, 1975, which declared that Major League Baseball players became free agents upon playing one year for their team without a contract, changed everything. The ruling nullified baseball's reserve clause, meaning that the players could now auction off their services to the highest bidder. While the decision was barely in the rearview mirror during the 1979 World Series, the net result would play out soon enough. Smaller market teams like the Pirates and Orioles, two teams in the bottom third of baseball in terms of media market size, would find it much harder to compete within this new economic landscape. Of the last 80 teams to make the World Series over the four decades since that 1979 World Series, teams from the bottom third of baseball's media markets have only appeared in the World Series 15 times, a significant underrepresentation. While in just the last 20 years, 10 of the World Series representatives have had payrolls in the top five of all of baseball, a span during which the team with the highest payroll in, payroll in baseball made the World Series six times, amounting to a significant overrepresentation. In the past 20 years, the World Series has not once pitted two teams in the bottom third of baseball in terms of payroll. With the Orioles having the third lowest payroll and the Pirates having the fourth lowest payroll last season, both of which being outspent 3-1 to one by the league's biggest spenders, it is easy to see how it is unlikely that we will see another Pirates and Orioles World Series matchup anytime soon. I think about what Pirates and Orioles fans were likely thinking to themselves shortly after that epic Game 7. Orioles fans thinking, wait till next year, and Pirates fans wondering if this was the beginning of a dynasty. Instead of recognizing they had just witnessed the end of a decade of greatness by both teams and the beginning of a new economic reality in baseball, especially for their teams. That's one of the most beautiful but most tragic things about sports, other than when a stadium closes or one of the truly greats like a Ripken or a Jeter goes on a retirement tour. You never really know when you're witnessing the end of an era. As the fictional character Andy Bernard from The Office would later say, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. It is doubtful that any of the Pirates or Orioles fans realized it during that seven-game stretch, but that very well could be the last time those two teams ever jointly dominate a baseball season again, let alone meet in the World Series.
That Game 7 of the 1979 World Series may have represented another very different inflection point in the story of professional baseball, even though nobody probably realized it at the time. The 1979 World Series may have been one of, if not the most, diverse World Series championships we'll ever see. The Pirates, after all, were no stranger to milestones relating to diversity. They were the first team to start an entirely non-white lineup in 1971. And in the final game of the 1979 World Series, the Pirates' starting lineup featured five African Americans and one Latino player, one of, if not the most diverse starting lineups in a Game 7 of a World Series of all time. To put that in perspective, 40 years later, in the most recent championship series, the World Series-winning Washington Nationals only had one African American in their entire starting lineup. And these statistics are not just coincidences, but are instead reflections of broader changes in baseball. In 1979, 17.9% of the league was African American. In 2019, that number went down to 7.7%. 11 teams last season had no more than one African-American player on their entire active rosters. So in addition to possibly not seeing a Game 7 between two small market teams like baseball witnessed in 1979, we also very well might not see a Game 7 played with as diverse of a composition as that game featured, especially not vis-a-vis African-Americans. Many different theories have been advanced about baseball's staggering decline in diversity, in particular with respect to African Americans, some about marketing strategies, others about the rise of African American superstars in other sports and the corresponding decline in baseball, and some about the declining adjacent diversity figures in baseball, represented by the overwhelmingly white managers, overwhelmingly white ownership, and overwhelmingly white fan base. But it could be something much more basic. Lee Steinberg, in an article in Forbes, observed the following. It may just be cost that is the most dominant factor in deterring black youth from playing baseball. Some estimates have 45% of young black children living under the poverty line in this country. Registration in football generally provides a helmet, jersey, and shoulder pads. Youth basketball requires only the purchase of a jersey and shoes. Youth baseball, however, requires the purchase of uniforms, gloves, cleats, and a bat for home use. Teams in economically disadvantaged areas are often required to apply for grants or constantly fundraise to support kids who want to play baseball. Plainly, basketball and football are cheaper for families. Against that backdrop, Macro-resource inequalities, as between different baseball markets, which make it unlikely that we'll see a Pirates-Orioles World Series anytime in the near future, are not unlike the more fundamental resource inequalities that cross-cut those markets and make it unlikely that we'll see a World Series game as diverse as the one featured in Game 7 of the 1979 World Series anytime soon either. We can shrug our shoulders and chalk this up to just another change in American culture, just like we can feign ignorance when we, when we look at the fact that the latest data shows that the coronavirus is killing African Americans at almost three times the rate that it is killing white people. Or we can dig deeper and look at stru- structural and systemic inequalities that are producing these skewed statistics and try to attack them head on. Between the two, my hope is that we pursue the latter.
While the Pirates' championship in 1979 was Pittsburgh's last time in the World Series in franchise history, it was also the third in a row of World Series in which the Bucks appeared and won, a streak which included the 1971 seven-game set, in which it also beat the Orioles, as well as the 1960 seven-game series in which they played and won against the Yankees. That Game 7 of the 1960 World Series, which MLB.com ranked as the best Game 7 of all time, after all, featured the only game-winning walk-off home run in a Game 7 in baseball history, when the Pirates' second baseman, Bill Mazeroski, clubbed the game-winner in the bottom of the ninth inning off Yankee pitcher Ralph Terry, who had come in in relief in the bottom of the eighth inning, just three games after he took the loss in Game 4. After that Game 7, Terry was devastated. Never mind the fact that Terry was not a relief pitcher, or the fact that he was actually called up five separate times to warm up in that game, something that undoubtedly left him out of his typical warm-up routine, or the fact that the bullpen mound was smaller and steeper than what Terry was used to, so much so that Terry would later recall that his front foot kept coming down early. Nevertheless, Terry was as crushed as his final fastball was after that ninth-inning home run by Mazeroski. Like Ralph Branca, the pitcher who yielded the so-called shot heard round the world to the New York Giants, Bobby Thompson in 1951, or Byun Young Kim, who blew two save opportunities during the 2001 World Series, Terry's name appeared destined to be indelibly etched into baseball history as the player who cost the New York Yankees the 1960 World Series. Terry later said, I knew it was something I'd have to live with the rest of my life. My name would be linked with Mazeroski's for the rest of time. Terry was married after the series and went on a honeymoon to Acapulco. There, he saw a sports page that said Terry E. Mazeroski. It was then he realized how history was likely to remember him. But while that Game 7 marked the end of manager Casey Singles' career with the Yankees, it did not mark the end of the Yankees' dynastic run. While the Pirates didn't return to the World Series for another decade, the Yankees were back the very next season, and after a season in which Terry managed somewhat of a bounce-back campaign, going 16-3 with a 3.15 ERA. But that postseason, the 1961 World Series, did not provide Terry the opportunity for redemption that he was looking for. Terry was unable to exercise the ghosts of the prior World Series, starting two games and losing one, putting forward mediocre numbers in both games. While the Yanks still won the 1961 series, Terry's place in baseball history appeared permanently tied to Mazeroski's. But while 1961 was a bounce-back season for Terry, it was 1962 when Terry established himself as a premier regular season starting pitcher. That year, Terry led the league with 23 victories and was an all-star in the process. While he didn't win the Cy Young that season, the 25-year-old and 25-game winner Don Drysdale did. Terry finished 14th in the American League MVP voting, the second-best fi finish of any AL pitcher that season. While his name was overshadowed by his teammate, the chairman of the board, Whitey Ford, and was still attached to the agony of the 1960 World Series defeat, Terry had quietly established himself as one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball that season. And when the Yankees won the pennant, there was no doubt that Terry would be in line for two important starts during the 1962 World Series, where it was hoped that Terry might finally shake his postseason woes.
1962 World Series pitted the New York Yankees against the San Francisco Giants in the first World Series played in Northern California and only the second played in California ever at that time. The series was one of the most star-studded of all time, with MVP award winner Mickey Mantle playing alongside Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, Ralph Terry, and Roger Maris all in pinstripes, and Major League home run leader Willie Mays playing alongside Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Juan Marichal, Felipe Alou, and Jim Davenport all donning the Giants' orange and black. The Giants edged out the Dodgers that season by one game, winning 103 in the process, while the Yankees finished the season comfortably five games ahead of the Twins with 96 wins of their own. Whitey Ford, coming off a Cy Young award-winning season in 1961, finished third that year in the American League in ERA with a 2.90 rate, along with a 17-8 record. Perhaps even more importantly, however, were Ford's postseason statistics. Ford, who had won the World Series MVP award the season before, had already won nine World Series games heading into that series, including each of his last four starts over the prior two World Series championships. So when it came time to set the rotation for the 62 World Series, unsurprisingly, the Yankees featured Ford at the top of the rotation pitching game one. And in so doing, the Yankees were setting Ford up to be in a position to pitch the mythical games one, four, and seven, should the series go the distance. Behind Ford in the rotation was Ralph Terry, the GOAT from the 1960 World Series, but someone who had pitched dominantly during the regular season and appeared poised for a comeback postseason performance. The first two games, played in San Francisco, were games the pinstripes split with the Giants, with Ford picking up the critical Game 1 victory in a 6-2 affair and Terry taking a hard-luck loss in Game 2 after giving up just two runs in seven innings. After the first two games in San Francisco, the teams took their scheduled off day and flew back to New York for Game 3. In Game 3, yet another tight game, the Yankees' number 3 pitcher Bill Stafford beat the Giants' Billy Pierce 3-2, giving New York a 2-1 series advantage in the process. Nobody knew it at the time, but it was the last time a pitcher not named Terry or Ford would start for the Yankees in the series. Game four was played as scheduled, the day after the off day, with Ford starting on just three days rest. The Yankees' plan of having the so-called chairman of the board pitch in games one, four, and seven, with Terry potentially squeezing in two starts, was moving forward according to plan. While the Giants got the win in that game, Ford, Ford was characteristically dominant, only allowing two runs in six innings and the series was now tied at two games apiece. But then, before Game 5, the rain came, and came hard. So hard, in fact, that Game 5 in New York was canceled. Terry, who took the hard luck loss in Game 2, was supposed to pitch in Game 5 on three days rest, in what would have been his final start in the series. But this extra day off gave the Yankees' number 2 pitcher an extra day of rest. Now, instead of pitching on three days rest, he got four full days. And the box score in Game 5 reflected the extra rest. Terry pitched a complete game, allowing just three runs while striking out seven in the Yankee victory. In the process, the weather delay plus Terry's dominant performance put Ford, the Yankee ace, in a position to maybe 
actress maybe return to the series even earlier than scheduled. Ford, after all, was set to pitch in games 1, 4, and 7, but the extra day of rest combined with the travel day would put Ford either in a position to pitch on three days rest in game 6 or on full rest for a potential game 7. In other words, the rain gave the Yankees more options. After completing the middle leg of the series, games 3, 4, and 5 in New York, the Bronx Bombers had a 3-2 series lead, thanks in part to the extra day of rest Terry got by virtue of the rain delay. The teams were scheduled to fly back to San Francisco to play games 6 and 7 on October 12th and October 13th, both of which were supposed to be played a day earlier, but were bumped back due to the weather interlude between, game, between games 4 and 5 in New York. Yankee manager Ralph Hook had a difficult decision to make as to whether to start Ford on short rest in Game 6 or to keep him on schedule for a potential Game 7 on full rest. There were strategic considerations on both sides of the equation. But as luck would have it, Mother Nature again took the decision out of his hands. Rain came, and this time on the West Coast. And it came torrentially. For the next four days, baseball was unplayable in Candlestick Park, a stadium notoriously bad at draining the playing field due to weather. The storm that hit the West Coast in October 1962 was nothing to laugh about. It was proclaimed the wettest, wildest weather event to hit the region since 1904, causing 35 deaths and hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage in the process. It rained for three straight days, stranding the Yankees in their hotel until the sun finally burst through on October 14th. But even then, Candlestick Park remained unplayable, and the players were complaining about getting rusty. And so on the eve of Game 6, both teams loaded into their buses and headed for Modesto, where they would practice at a tiny facility called the Del Webb Field. The Modesto Bee's articles about the event claimed that there were 5,000 fans crammed into the stadium, but the stadium only seated 2,100 fans altogether. But thousands of baseball fans descended on the stadium, lurking around the parking lot, craning for glimpses of a Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays sighting. The scene was epic, even historic, for baseball fans in Modesto. For just 90 minutes, the crowds witnessed this once-in-a-lifetime event featuring eight future Hall of Famers. It was a big moment for the small city of Modesto, and one that somehow does the rounds every time a rain delay affects a World Series today. I'm not from Modesto, so I can't speak with authority on the subject. But the rain delay, which caused the star-studded affair to come to Modesto, seems to be built into the city's history now, perhaps even a source of pride for its sports fans. It seems to have become a did-you-know story that puts its city back on the map every wet fall classic. Regardless, by October 15th, the decision about whether to start Ford on short or long rest was now moot. The four extra days of rest made the pitching decisions for the Yankees a no-brainer. Whitey Ford would pitch Game 6 with a whopping seven days of rest, while Ralph Terry, who had just dominated the Giants in Game 5, would pitch a Game 7 if necessary on six full days of rest. And so, and so, instead of having one pitcher collect the mythical three starts in a single World Series, typically by pitching Games 1, 4, and 7, the Yankees were now in a position where they could trot out both of their aces for three starts apiece, with Whitey Ford starting Games 1, 4, and 6, and Ralph Terry starting Games 2, 5, and possibly 7. In other words... 
when all was said and done, the Yankees' two best pitchers were set up to start six of the seven games that series. As fate would have it, the Giants got the best of Whitey Ford in Game 6, evening the series at three games apiece and forcing a Game 7 for just the 18th time in Major League Baseball history. On the mound for that Game 7 for the Yankees was Ralph Terry, the GOAT from the 1960 World Series who had only one career Game 7 under his belt, the one that ended with him recording just one out and yielding the game-winning home run to Pirates second baseman Bill Mazeroski. And despite the fact that both teams looked a little rusty in Game 6 the day before, fans saw one of the best-pitched Game 7s of all time. Terry retired the first 17 men in a row before finally yielding a bloop single, and through eight innings, Terry had only given up two hits, walked nobody, and yielded no runs. The lineup featuring Mays, McCovey, and Cepeda had just two hits through eight innings. On the other side of the box score, the Giants pitcher Jack Sanford was close to, if not equally, as effective. While he gave up seven hits, not a single one was for extra bases. The only run the Yankees scored in the entire game was in the fifth inning, after back-to-back singles followed by a double play scored Yankee first baseman Bill Scourun. Heading into the bottom of the ninth inning, with the Yankees leading one to nothing, and Terry dealing, working on extra rest, Yankee manager Ralph Houck decided to leave in his number two pitcher for what could have been the final frame of the 1962 World Series. Terry, undoubtedly with memories of the last time he pitched in the bottom of the ninth inning of a Game 7 in the World Series, first faced Matty Alou, who was pinch-hitting for the pitcher's spot. Alou hit a drag bunt and was safe at first, and just like that, with no outs, the tying run was on first, and Terry was one big hit away from being remembered in infamy for blowing two World Series games. But Terry miraculously struck out the next two batters, Matty's brother Felipe and then Chuck Hiller. With two outs and a tying run on first, Willie Mays stepped into the box with Willie McCovey standing in the on-deck circle. The margin for error was razor thin, and Mays delivered, ripping a double to right. The speedy Alou rounded second, thinking he was on his way to tie the game. But the Giants' third base coach, cognizant of the damp base paths, held Alou at third. Perhaps also thinking about the arm of Roger Maris and Wright, or the fact that Willie McCovey and Orlando Cepeda were up next, Alou was held up. But the Giants now had the tying and go-ahead runs in scoring position, with the Giants slugging first baseman stepping up to the plate. McCovey was one swing away from World Series fame. Terry was one out away from redemption. With first base open, the Yankees had a decision to make, whether to pitch to McCovey or to Cepeda. The Yankees decided to take on McCovey. Known as Stretch for his six-foot-four frame, McCovey was arguably one of the most underappreciated hitters in baseball history. His 521 home runs over a 22-year career ranked 20th all-time. He was also notorious for being a pull hitter, so much so that Yankee second baseman and seven-time gold glove winner Bobby Richardson was positioned to his extreme left, knowing about McCovey's tendency to pull. With a base open, Terry delivered a 1-1 fastball to McCovey, who swung and made contact. 
Those who saw the at-bat described the swing with a variety of terms, calling it a crack, a rip, a smack, a crush. The words used vary, but all those who witnessed it agreed on one thing. It was loud. The slugger later said it was the hardest ball he had ever hit. Both Alou and Mays were running on contact, and the moment McCovey's bat met Terry's fastball, Mays was a blur toward third. McCovey darted out of the box almost uncontrollably. But baseball is a funny sport. You don't get runs for how hard you hit a ball, for how fast you swing your bat, or how fast the ball travels after contact. As Willie Keeler said, you have to hit them where they ain't. And that was probably the only thing McCovey did not do right during that at-bat. Before the announcer could finish his description of the ball's trajectory, the ball went chest-high into the glove of Yankee second baseman Bobby Richardson, who was playing McCovey perfectly, which dashed San Francisco's dreams of a championship. No matter how fundamentally sound the ball player or his execution, timing can create unpredictable outcomes. A millisecond earlier, and who knows what would have happened. One foot higher, or either way, and I guess I would have been a hero, McCovey would later say. I hit the ball as hard as I could, and I thought I had a hit, but it was right at him. He added, nothing I could do about that. Far from a goat, McCovey played on as one of the most feared hitters in Major League Baseball for years to come, but he never got over that moment. Terry, on the other hand, who moments earlier stood at the brink of solidifying his reputation as one of baseball's all-time most infamous choke artists, was redeemed, winning his second game of the series and locking himself in as the MVP of the 1962 World Series. And while Terry, the only player in Major League Baseball history to have thrown the final pitch to lose and win a World Series, was carried off the field and immortalized in Yankee lore as the pitcher who helped win one of the most dramatic World Series ever, and one of only two 1-0 Game 7 winners in Major League Baseball history. What if the third base coach had sent a Lou, Giants fans must have wondered. What if McCovey had swung a second earlier? Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, was an avid Giants fan living in nearby Sebastopol, California. Naturally, Schultz's character, Charlie Brown, was also a big Giants fan. Like McCovey, Charlie Brown couldn't shake his anguish about that year's World Series and how it ended. In a strip that ran on December 22, 1962, Brown sits on a curb in a moment of reflection with Linus, hands propping up their chins, looking distant and despondent for three of the four frames. And then in the final frame, Charlie Brown, the lovable loser and round-headed protagonist of the strip, loses it. He bolts to his feet, his mouth wide open, and lets out his grief. Why couldn't McCovey have just hit the ball three feet higher, he cries. It would take 27 years for another World Series game to be played in San Francisco, that one interrupted by an earthquake, being the only World Series that from start to finish lasted longer than the 13-day 1962 World Series. And it would take 40 years for the San Francisco Giants to finally win another game in the World Series. Finally, nearly 50 years later, McCovey finally got to participate in a parade 
when the Giants embarked on their own redemption tour, winning three world championships in five years. One can only wonder how the 1962 series would have played out had Mother Nature not gifted the Yankees with that extra rest, which allowed not just one, but two of its star pitchers to make the mythical three starts in a World Series, something that Earl Weaver's Orioles couldn't do with any of his pitchers during the 1979 World Series. But just as the Dodgers, who traded a sizable loot for one year's worth of services from former MVP Mookie Betts have learned oh too well this year, the timing of events that cause games to be canceled is not something within our control. I'm not sure why my wife and I chose to get married in 2019 rather than 2020. After all, 2020 sure seems to have had a better ring to it, but we chose 2019 and were lucky enough to get hundreds of our friends and family together 11 months ago to sit in a crowded room for the ceremony and then dance on a small dance floor. We shook nearly a thousand hands, hugged hundreds of different people. We took pictures with our arms around people who traveled to our wedding from other sides of the country. And my wife danced with her father and I danced with my mother, two people who we haven't had physical contact with now for months. Not once did we think that we might not ever be able to do those things again. I guess that's the thing about being in the good old days. Like Pirates and Orioles fans who wonder if their teams will ever return to baseball's mountaintops, I'm not sure whether we'll ever be able to celebrate so communally ever again. But if we aren't, I hope we can appreciate and remember the fact that we were able to do it in the first place rather than lament the fact that we might not be able to do it again. But before I pat myself on the back too smugly for fortuitously sneaking in my wedding before the summer that might not be, my heart goes out to those who were excitedly waiting to celebrate their nuptials over the next few months, but whose dream celebrations now are on hold. As the teams in the 1962 and 1979 World Series know all too well, Mother Nature and other acts of God don't pick winners and losers based on merit. They pick blindly. But for all my friends and family for whom the proverbial cogs missed during this quarantine, for Devin and Trevor and Jason and Jordan and Jose and William, whose birthdays happened to fall within the shadow of the quarantine, or for Giancarlo and Dee, whose 2020 wedding hung in limbo due to COVID and now looks to be postponed another year. And for Brett and Amanda, whose first and only chance to celebrate their baby Ramona's first birthday was changed dramatically due to the novel coronavirus. Consider the story of Ralph Terry. Maybe, just maybe, your important moments, like Game 6 and 7 of the 1962 World Series, weren't actually canceled. Maybe they've just been postponed. And maybe we're all just getting extra days of rest, just like Terry did before his epic Game 7 performance, where we too will get a shot at our own collective form of redemption, and where we too may just have the best damn outings of our lives. I'm Patrick Hammond. Thank you for listening to this episode of Q.
canceled.